This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, technologist and digital media scholar An Chao Mina and curator Dorothy Santos explore the long, winding road from innocuous cat memes to the central practice for civic engagement that memes have become today. This event was recorded on January 19, 2019, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I'm going to start with a little story. Story, yes. So... When Ann was writing the book proposal, I was working on my master's thesis, and I can never go to tart to tart with anyone else but Ann, who used to be my former work wife. Um, it's up in the up in the sunset, uh, in the yeah, sunset district, tart to tart. Yeah, but I, I think the reason why I start with that is because I we've been talking about memes for a long time. Yes, and we've been talking about digital network culture. And I think I'm going to start, there's so much to talk about, but I think I'm going to start with what we just were riffing off of, which was this idea that Kate Crawford brings up in her essay or her her work about peripheral listening or AKA lurking on the internet. And I was thinking through this, this thread of you know, most people probably start off as a peripheral listener and then maybe become an active listener and then maybe a content producer. So, you know, not to start off with with um, with the the fake, 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 fake chapter, but I think <laughs> I mean, literally, that's what the chapter is called. It's called fake, 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 which is a great chapter title. Seinfeld reference. I don't yeah. know how many people got that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I wanted to start off with this idea that you're bringing up about distinguishing between misinformation and disinformation, and how that kind of factored into into your into your research. And you know, but thinking through, say, Crawford's idea of this peripheral listener becoming like maybe making their way to becoming a, a content producer, right. and how that then has how that relates to you know d- the disinformation that we've seen since. I mean especially more visibly in 2016, the 2016 election. Right. Well, I think, I think in the, the kind of context of meme culture in general, right, um, when you think about the history of, you know, kind of 20th century art, um, it was often, um, it was this transition into a place where art became this, this thing you look at on the wall or, or you go to a theater and you just experience it. Um, and, uh, and digital culture in general um, uh, kind of shifted that. It wasn't just digital culture. You could argue that hip-hop, street art uh, were kind of the precursors here, but um, but digital culture in general became um, an invitation um, uh, because of the the kind of easy remixability, um, the ease of of participation, like the like, comment, share. These kind of digital gestures um, created like a pathway from from absorbing and listening to actually engaging in some way. And then and then also then you also had then as they say reward system um, through through the fact that you get these likes. Um, through the fact that um, you get, you know, you might get more visibility or um, or more followers, um, you know, kind of digital platforms created these kind of incentive models as well that uh, that that help people, you know, feel like, oh, great, I'm creating something, I'm getting rewarded for it, and then over time encourages this, and so um, so that pathway from uh, from passive listening 
to participation to suddenly co-creation, um, it's a much blurrier line, I think, than, uh, than you might traditionally think of when, like you're reading the newspaper, the effort to write the letter to the editor um, to actually respond um, uh, was significantly greater. And so, um, uh, so in so many ways, that's um, uh, digital culture, digital platforms, and, and just, you know, just the general trends in, in art are bringing us back to what art was before, ironically, right? Um, uh, so much of art in the beginning uh, was, was really about riffing and remixing and responding, um, and, and we kind of lost touch with that in the 20th century, and so 21st century platforms are returning, returning us to that. So, and this is a pretty thorny topic that admittedly I have to do a lot more research on, but we were discussing this as well. How do you think Article 13 Mm. would affect something like that? This idea of remixing and, you know, I'm also thinking of Lawrence Lessig's kind of free culture and, you know, his kind of thoughts about, you know, um, you know, like, uh, again, remixing. But yeah, so do you have thoughts about that? Yeah. So, I mean, how many people are familiar with Article 13, the regulation in the EU? Um, So I guess... Oh, one person. Great. <laughs> so just just to just to uh, reiterate it, and I'm I'm not a legal scholar, so I'm going to mess it up. But uh, but it's this it's a regulation coming out of the EU that would um, make platforms, specifically platforms, responsible for um, the presence of copyrighted material that is not compensated for the copyright maker. Um, uh, the current method right now um, in the U.S. is that the the copyright owner. Um, uh, is is responsible for for kind of flagging that sort of content and then taking it down. Um, it's blurry because uh, you know you do have incidents incidences like uh, like YouTube does does take down like um, you know straight up copies of, of say like a Beyonce video. Um, uh, but um, you know the the context in which this is happening right it's it's often called the the anti meme law right um, because uh, you know the, the one way to interpret the law is, is or the regulation is. Um, is that any sort of remixes? So if you you know, really love that Beyonce video, and then you you do a, a remix and you you sing along to it, um, and you you do the dances, right? That that um, uh, there there are more regu- in theory there are more regulations for the platform like a YouTube or Facebook to then take down that content. Um, and so much of meme culture is that you know those of us familiar with it is that it often relies on remixing and reshaping um, existing copyrighted material. Um, and so it's it's a fuzzy um, because um, you know some some legal scholars have argued that it um, this sort of content uh, meme cult- content could fall under uh, parody um, in the United States it might fall under fair use um, again I'm not a legal scholar so how that actually plays out is is a different story but um, uh, it it will definitely raise um, some thorny issues around uh, around how. Uh, memes are expressed, and then how they're regulated on on uh, public platforms, uh, well, private platforms for the public use. So that kind of, well, again, I this is something that we talked about briefly. I mean, we can talk about this for for I mean, gosh, for for hours. But this notion of authorship, and so how did when you looked at because I know for the book specifically, um, but even when we were you know, with, when we were kind of working on the Civic Beat, which I'm not sure how many people know the Civic Beat. It was a group, a research group that On founded, and I've done work with the Civic Beat. Yes, co-founded, co-founded. And um, I just really enjoyed my time with the Civic Beat. But something that I realized back then and even to now and even seeing it as I read your, as I read your book was, you know, notions of authorship. Like what does it mean to, you know, to 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 own? Is that possible? And, you know, I think I look at some, you know, like something like Know Your Meme, you know, so so Kenyatta's work. And if you could speak a little bit to that in the research that went into it, how did you see maybe different permutations of authorship? 
Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question because um, uh, I think many people don't think of memes as being owned or authored. All right, it's it's kind of like it's this culture where things are just magically happening, and and we say that something went viral, uh, but we don't say that people made it go viral. It's just like these, these things are just circulating. Um, and so, but there are authors. There are people who are creating memes um, who have intentions behind it, um, and uh, um, and especially the ones who kind of originate um, an idea or a thing that kind of blows up. Um, they are people with with a kind of an intent, um, a, a cultural background, a perspective. Um, but at the same time, uh, so much of meme culture is about uh, kind of de-emphasizing authorship um, and re- and emphasizing remix and participation and co-creation. Um, so, so Article 13 in so many ways is a reflection of, again, it's actually, you know, when you think about the kind of the idea of intellectual property, the idea of owning a thing, right, um, that's a relatively recent invention um, and uh, generally like a, you know, Western kind of concept um, obviously exists in other places as well now. Um, but it's, you know, the, the idea that you own a thing, you own a creation um, that it belongs to um, is, uh, is again, a historic moment. Um, and so we're at this point of tension because, we, you know, we still live in that world um, of, uh, you know, the thing we make, the technically U.S. copyright law, the thing you make is the thing you own. Um, but then you have this participatory meme culture where that is not the point. The point is the participation. The point is the kind of participation in the culture. Um, and so, um, so you're getting these points of tension where, where the laws are not kind of in sync with how people see themselves as participating. At the same time, uh, a lot of the reason I wrote the book was, um, is ethnographically speaking, or when you're interviewing people, uh, they have an intention, um, and they 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 do um, they do see themselves as as contributing a part of themselves into the larger meme culture. Um, so it's complex, um, and so, but what we're seeing is basically a, a kind of distinction between authorship and ownership, um, and also kind of the, the singular vision of the creative work versus like the idea that, that there might be a multiplicity. Um, and so I think that's what's an interesting kind of aspect of digital culture more broadly. You know, speaking of authorship versus ownership, it also reminds me of this 2012, in 2012, there was a tendency of the new aesthetic in the arts, right, right, yeah. you know, where it's like every, you know, we're just going to pixelate everything. And this is what a machine looks like if it were looking out at, into the world. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because there was something that there was, there was actually, you know, two phrases that I could think about this post internet is another tendency that came up in around 2012 along with the expanded internet. And the reason why I'm bringing that up contextually and in relationship to kind of new media and digital art and in relationship to obviously memes and your research and your work on them is, you know, I think about, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I guess I, I was thinking about Jacqueline Keeler's work with even creating new lexicon for, you know, what she was developing when, you know, we think about not your mascot. And I'm bringing this up because, I think they're they're really obvious memes that people, you know, want to talk about. But I think the reason why I'm kind of wanting to talk about that one in particular is because it gave birth to mascotry, this idea of there is a deeper narrative when you are, you know, you have your all-American sport, but then there's this mascot that has such, it's so rife with the colonialism and settler, settler colonialism, but also just this just dark history of America, right? And so I wanted to ask about, more in relationship to kind of the intellectual ownership maybe, of other forms that you've seen 
the other form that you, you've mentioned in the book was uh, birther, birtherism, yeah. when people were questioning Obama's citizenship, for instance. So if you could just share with us here and, um, and yeah, I'm curious of other, other words, vocabulary, lexicon around movements that you've seen that uh, sparked a whole new kind of way of talking about uh, history. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's what's interesting when you start looking at meme culture and politics is that so much of it is actually about referencing history and then contending with history and through different sets of values. And so um, uh, just to just to extrapolate a little bit on, on uh, Jacqueline Keeler's work, she's a you know, native native journalist um, and uh, she wanted to, to kind of call to mind, right, and, and bring, you know, bring to light the, the fact that so many uh, sports teams use a Native American symbol, symbolism or, or, or literally a Native American um, image uh, of a person um, as, as their mascot. Um, and so, um, so it's actually a good, a good example of iteration because the, the original hashtag that they used was hashtag change the name. Um, uh, but it turned out that that was uh, ambiguous enough that uh, uh, some other hashtag uh, that uh, some other group was using um, kind of took over that hashtag. And so then she changed it to hashtag not your mascot. Um, and, and, then, and then eventually then formed a Facebook group called the Eradication of Native Mascotry. Um, and so um, the, the kind of coining of terms, right, is, it's, I think it's an important part of how movements operate, um, this, uh, the kind of introduction of a narrative or the introduction of a, of a frame of reference um, that, that, that then kind of encapsulates a larger worldview. Um, and so, um, uh, so similarly, um, uh, uh, we all recognize MAGA um, as a as kind of maybe not a word, but it's a, it's a summation of a worldview. Um, and so, um, uh, it obviously also references history, both uh, you know just in general the, the American past, uh, but then also literally uh, Reaganism. The, you know, uh, the, one of the original kind of Reaganist um, sayings was "Let's make America great again." Um, and so. Um, you see this, these kind of points of contention um, that the, the the coinage of terms, the the kind of reference of a thing that um, that can encapsulate an entire movement, um, often draws from from history. Often draws from uh, you know in the U.S. is drawing from uh, from U.S. history and different frames of reference. Um, and so um, so when these uh, movements collide or when they're they kind of engaged in contention, it's not just about the words. It's a bit, it's about what the words and the frameworks uh, stand for more uh, more broadly. Now I'm going to ask something really touchy, and it's about what you're bringing up in relationship to history. Because I think there are some memes that I've seen and hashtags that are that are just blatantly revisionist or can be seen as such. Um, and I'm talking about the memes that are intentionally uh, meant to be contentious. So "All Lives Matter" is a really good example. Um, Blue Lives Matter. Um, even, you know, I, and I can't think of them right now, but there's so many in, and this is kind of the inundation of information speaks to that is, but those are kind of a couple of the, of the ones that come to my mind where, you know, with one, you always have the other and the internet kind of proves that, you know? And so I'm speaking to that, speaking to going back to history that, that, these these memes, these hashtags always have some kind of root. There's a, there's a root, Right as you mentioned, make America great again. What have you seen in relationship to these contentious kind of oppositional memes, such, such as the ones that I brought up that you noticed, like kind of how did people, or yeah, maybe you could speak to this. In, how, how have you noticed people kind of gathering around these oppositional memes or these more contentious memes? Yeah. 
I think there are two ways to think about it, and I'll bring up an example from Hong Kong um, just to just to kind of step away from the U.S. context because um, uh, this is actually it's, a, it's actually a really interesting global phenomenon. So in Hong Kong, you had the, the umbrella movement, um, which was a, a movement for uh, for universal suffrage in in the, the city state, right? And uh, it, is a, it is a PRC territory, but um, they have it's a one country, two systems uh, system. Um, and so as uh, the, there's kind of growing awareness of Beijing's uh, kind of influence in in uh, in, in Hong Kong, um, the the umbrella movement arose. And so um, uh, I'm just going to skim a lot of the history of it, but basically you had the symbolism of the yellow umbrella. Um, that came to stand in for uh, the push for universal suffrage, and then people would use a, a yellow ribbon that they would wear um, that is in reference to the women's suffrage movement in the United States. So again, kind of drawing from history to, to tell a larger story. Um, uh, the response to that uh, was was a whole range of ribbons. Um, so you had uh, the blue ribbon, um, which was um, in support of, of uh, local police. And then you had the red ribbon, which was um, in support of, of nationalism, um, Chinese nationalism. Um, and so... In so many ways, uh, you know, part of this is, is you know, Marley Vincent Lindsay is a, a, a meme scholar, and he's written about this, that cultures of memes, they never stay still. Um, things never stay still now. Um, and, uh, you know, we are talking about remix earlier, uh, that uh, the remix also is a remix of intention and of, of purpose. Um, but in so many ways, when you, when you look at the fact that, that the, the opposition uses, uses the, the same language, the same symbolism, but like remixes it, is in many ways a, a, an affirmation of the original power of the original thing. Um, that uh, that uh, meme, meme culture, hashtag culture, symbolism, um, and again, this is not a new phenomenon, but it's kind of accelerated on the internet. Um, is uh, uh, it has it has tremendous power, and that's why those frames um, become uh, remixed um, because they, they become a point of challenge. And so you see this from the left and from the right, and so. Um, uh, you know, back to the U.S. context. Uh, so you had or the origin of Black Lives Matter. Then you had All Lives Matter. You had Blue Lives Matter. Um, and then also with uh, going back to Make America Great Again, um, uh, there's also Make America Mexico Again. Um, and uh, um, and then Antonio Jose, uh, Jose Antonio Vargas created um, the, the hat um, Immigrants Make America Great. Um, and so, um, so in many ways, it's it's kind of an affirmation of, of the original power of the thing. Um, and uh, and so the the remix the response the, um, should not surprise us, but actually should be expected. I'm so happy that you took us out of the U.S. context because this reminded me of one of the phenomenons that I I learned about when I was reading your book was Uganda, not Spain. Yes. Could you talk a little bit more about that because that to me was a really fascinating. I don't want to call them case studies because I don't want to you know. I, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, be, you know, an academic douche, but, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, but they are I, case studies. They are case studies. <laughs> but um, no, could you please speak to Uganda, not Spain, please? Uganda, not Spain. How many of you remember Coney twenty twelve? Hashtag Coney twenty twelve. Okay, many of you remember. So that same year, um, uh, so Coney twenty twelve was a hashtag, a hashtag movement that, that emerged out of San Diego around Uganda, and um, I'll just skim over that history. But that same year. Um, uh, the prime minister of Spain, um, uh, you know, Spain was going through kind of economic troubles and had texted his finance minister and said, you know, don't worry, we got this. Uh, Spain is not Uganda. As word came out of that incident, right, um, uh, uh, Ugandan uh, 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 citizens and uh, led by Rosbel Kagomiria, who's a journalist there, crafted this hashtag, uh, uh, Uganda is not Spain. 
um, and uh, and started tweeting out facts and statistics showing uh, GDP growth, you know, the beautiful landscape, uh, you know, so many reasons that Uganda is in fact not Spain, and why Uganda might actually be more interesting in some ways. Um, but I think what what was really interesting about that was. Um, you know, like honestly, like I, uh, how many people from the West could could pinpoint Uganda on a map? Um, uh, so you had this the fact that you know this kind of historically overlooked nation um, uh, was able to to shift for just briefly um, a narrative, um, change a narrative using the same language, um, but like, but twisting it, and then um, and then that drove articles like BBC, Al Jazeera, all these all these like news outlets jumped in and said, well. What you know? What is the difference between Uganda, Spain, and Spain? And uh, like you had all these kind of think pieces and, and op eds, and and so it was a good example of how um, it's something as simple as a hashtag um, coming from a historically overlooked nation uh, was able to drive international discourse. Uh, you know, for for a brief period of time, and uh, and you see these patterns today. You see um, uh, the kind of the response to um, the New York Times um, article that included the, the bodies of of, uh, of Kenyans who were um, uh, who had died during the, the the violence recently in Nairobi. The pushback came through hashtag culture, through Twitter, um, through hashtag KOT Kenyans on Twitter. Um, and so um, these these patterns continue today. Um, that there there are these avenues for voice and shifting narratives um, from places where um, historically um, uh, there might have been limit, limited opportunities. Okay, I have to ask a really difficult question because you know, and this this the reason why I brought up Uganda, not Spain, was because it is part of the chapter on narrative. And so you're talking about you know how you know hashtag and meme culture kind of spawn into these different types of narratives that then kind of translate into the media, you know, in news stories, etc. So one of the things I was thinking about was <clears throat> what, and this is the reason why it's a tough question. The internet just seems so siloed, you know, and, and there, if you know how they, they, the whole, oh gosh, why am I bringing up Apple? But you know, it's like, there's an app for everything. It's like, if you find it on the, if you find it on the internet, it must exist, or there's some kind of reality to it. There, it, there, it's, it's on some plane real to somebody. So I'm curious if you've seen a movement in particular, if you can speak to a movement that you saw a kind of, I mean, the umbrella movement was a really good example because it kind of relates back to, you know, how um, to like U.S. history, et cetera, that you brought up earlier. But could you give another example of where you saw a movement actually bring different differing communities together? You know, where and the reason why I'm asking this, and I think it's just and I, this is adjacent. But one of the things that has really fascinated me as of late is this idea of like truth reconciliation councils in war-torn countries and how, how, how does that work? How do you reconcile truth? But I oftentimes see memes and hash or in, in a broader sense, uh, hashtags actually doing that to a certain extent, because when, when I click on a hashtag that I'm, you know, and I, I usually affix a, a hashtag to any kind of research I'm doing because I want to see what what are people talking about, and to a certain extent, when I see the stream of of, of tweets or uh, posts um, on a particular, even if I look up bioethics, if I look up the hashtag bioethics, it's not necessarily that every single thing is a truth. But when I start to look for the thoroughways in words, lexicon, and just language, uh, I start to see where the truths can be reconciled. So I'm curious if there's a specific movement that, you know, you looked at that, that did that. 
It's incredibly difficult these days. I think um, uh, so written recently and touched on it in the book, um, you know, we, we think of this moment as the death of truth. Um, but it looks more like the death of consensus. Um, it's, uh, and what I mean by that is the kind of social mechanisms by which we negotiate truth um, are different depending on who your communities of trust are, your networks of affiliation, um, and literally the networks where you spend time. Um, and so uh, in the broadcast era, um, it was very it was you know, a, a simpler proposition to try to generate consensus. I think the easiest example here is, is kind of Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in America. Um, uh, we now have multiple trusted people, um, and uh, and we can we can kind of push away uh, people we don't trust and, and kind of choose the mo- the mechanisms of consensus by which we we come to to kind of value the world and, and kind of see the world. Um, and so um, it's increasingly difficult, I think, um, in this kind of world of, of uh, what uh, Penny Andrews calls digital dissensus um, to, to come to agreement. And so I think we have to kind of stop and acknowledge that, that it's, uh, um, is that uh, the, this kind of the, the, the range of opportunities to, to build community has been a wonderful thing um, for, for many reasons, um, but then it's also made it much more complex as a result um, to really to build a singular narrative about anything. Um, and so, um, uh, and we should expect this to, to kind of become more and more difficult over time. Um, and, and not easier. Um, at the same time, um, uh, if we're, we're looking at this from the perspective of movements, um, this actually then creates a challenge for a movement um, because uh, the whole point of a movement is to is to make the idea of a thing um, so um, impossible to to ignore um, that uh, that consensus is it becomes a ne- necessary uh, kind of conclusion, right? Um, or to at least nudge along enough people that you can you can kind of you know just move it move it into into reality, and so um, so in the book I, I talk a little bit about the uh, the activism around the Ayotzinapa forty three um, uh, forty three disappeared students in Mexico, um, and how that, that created this um, this incredible um, kind of galvanization of people um, in the streets on YouTube on Twitter. Um, uh, you know, the parents uh, marched into the United States and, and held, um, you know, what they called the Caravana uh, 43, um, and went all throughout the United States. Um, and then you'd see here in California, here in San Francisco, uh, posters. Have you seen them? Have you seen the Yotsinapa 43? And I think one of the lessons there that I that I kind of gleaned is that um, the amount of effort that it took to do that um, it was kind of awe inspiring. Um, because uh, to uh, to really shift the narrative, uh, to to draw attention um, to 43 disappeared rural, um, many of them indigenous uh, Mexican students, um, uh, given all the other disappearances that happened, uh, was incredibly difficult to do. Um, and so, as we as we uh, see this kind of world of the census continuing, the optimal solution um, is to is those with more money, resources, power. Um, or those with the time to commit um, to 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 be omnipresent throughout all media, um, uh, it optimizes basically for those people. And so you, you get these kind of outlying examples. You get the Yotinapi 43. You get the Umbrella Movement. Um, kind of incredible movements. Um, but over time, um, uh, because we live in an attention economy, um, it's those who can drive attention um, and who have the resources to do so, um, which more likely is going to come from uh, billionaires or um, people with with access to to kind of large megaphones. Wow. I don't have a big megaphone, so that's really – no, I'm just – anyway. I, no, <laughs> we have it, microphones. It's, we have microphones. We have, microphones. We have, yeah. Well, no, I mean, but I think it's it, – it kind of – I think that's also – I mean, this is just this is just more of an aside. I, I, I remember having a conversation with my niece the other day who is, uh, you know, uh, 19 and I – you know, and 
being being 40, I she keeps me hip, you know. And I told her that when I was like, wow, when I was in high school, and yeah, okay, when I was in college, because I was in college in the 90s, um, I didn't have things like Facebook and, or, you know, yeah, no, I didn't have Facebook, you know, well, MySpace. We had MySpace. We had MySpace yes. and Friendster, right? Friendster. I, t- I took oh a Oh my bug. gosh. I took That's a bug. <laughs> but even those platforms, so th- th- this is more of a platform question now because I just, I kind of wanted to ask this is, I noticed in the book that you actually talked about the different forms uh, and, and, and permutations of memes themselves. There's text, there's image, there's video. But anyway, the conversation that I had with my niece the other day is I said, you know, don't you feel inundated? Don't you feel, how do you, how do you learn? How do you learn about, do you, do you, how do you pay attention to news? What do you know? How do you know what to pay attention to? So it's, so let's like step aside from disinformation, misinformation. Let's talk about inundation of information. And so I'm wondering, you know, as you outline the different types of memes, have you seen one type that performs, so to speak, better than the other ones? You know, like I think earlier someone we were talking to someone about how uh, Vine was a really beloved platform and then that kind of went away. And, you know, people, you know, but then again, it, you can, can we see that we see the boomerang effect in like Instagram, for instance. So could you speak a little bit more to the the efficacy of one meme over another? Have, did you notice that when you were kind of investigating memes, like that there are certain memes that if it was just, if it was a video, it seemed to, you know, be a little bit more uh, powerful or influential than say an image or, you know, and again, I'm, I'm going to bring this word into, into the picture, but like a semiotics, you know, where you're mixing image, you're mixing word. And how does that, how does that kind of lessen the impact or maybe um, increase the impact of what we're looking at and seeing? Like, did, did you, did you notice anything like that? Right, right. Well, I think, um, and in here, uh, you know, there's memes just specifically in politics that, uh, that I'm looking at. And so, but in general, like, it's, it's actually, what, what, what's interesting is like, it's hard to know. It, it's always obvious in retrospect. Um, but in ahead of time, it's hard to know what's actually going to blow up. I think I think some, there's some like meme makers who just have a very kind of particular like intuition. Um, but uh, I was reading the research in, in the book um, of Amanda Lotz, a professor who uh, has this term uh, intentional overproduction. Um, and uh, it's a it's a it's a term actually from from Hollywood and, and music where um, you know, the, these production agencies will just overproduced because they just don't know what the next hit will be. And this is why we get a lot of sequels, by the way, because once you get a hit, you want to invest in that, invest in that, invest in that, because you never quite know what's going to blow up. And so meme culture is, is kind of an expression of this, right? And so many meme makers I know, people I know um, who, who are uh, kind of experimenting are literally just putting out lots of things and then testing, testing different ideas. I call it the spaghetti method. Just see what sticks and then, um, and then that becomes uh, the thing of the day or the thing of the, you know, of the larger movement. Um, and so when we're talking about movements, though, um, uh, the, the ones that really take hold, that, that at least that I've noticed, um, go beyond that. And, and this is why in the book I talk about the importance of narrative um, and uh, you know, the importance of story. Um, and, uh, and it's not coincidence that, um, that some of the most important hashtags and most important symbols 
draw from history. Um, they, they tell this larger story. Um, you know, the, the English word story comes from, uh, you know, the, the Latin historia, right? Um, and so, um, so the stories that, that can tell us, uh, uh, reinforce a worldview or tell it to shape a worldview um, are the ones that, that, that uh, have lasting power. And so um, everything from hashtag Occupy Wall Street um, to uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter, uh, um, I do think MAGA as well will have a kind of lasting impact uh, we've, because, because of Reaganism as well, right? It's already had a long, long history. Um, and so these uh, these memes um, that that can that can pull from history tend to have a larger um, kind of larger impact. Um, but then going going to your other question about like what types of media tend to do well, um, if we think about our, our our kind of media environment we're in right now, it's it's optimized for attention um, and it's optimized for for kind of trying to get as many eyeballs as possible because most platforms survive on advertising dollars. And so what this creates is actually a kind of one-upmanship um, in innovation. Um, and so, uh, so you know, one of the first memes I can remember is the dancing hamster um, kind of gifts, right? Um, how many of you remember that? Yeah, yeah, great. That would get no attention today, right? That's just like that's like one little sticker on Instagram or in mm-hmm. Snapchat. Um, uh, and so, it, you just have to constantly iterate, right? And so, um, a lot of the memes that I look at towards the end of the book um, are moving from you know little gifts to hashtags to selfies to physically gathering in the streets, dressing up as memes, bringing your memes, um, and then um, and then kind of shaping discourse through like physical physical gathering. Um, the pussy hat being being an example of that. Um, and uh, we should expect more of that. We should expect more of this kind of attention game to continue. Um, AOC being being the latest iteration of this, um, using Instagram Live, using Instagram Stories, um, and so it's in so many ways it's about who um, who can um, innovate the quickest um, and, and kind of surprise uh, the larger media discourse. Um, and so uh, I would expect more VR, AR memes, uh, hardware memes that are definitely going to be a thing um, uh, because that's just how how this. A media ecosystem is is, is uh, kind of structured right now. This makes me regret not wearing my dog butt face <laughs> T-shirt. I'm serious. You know, yeah. remember there was a meme. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that's <laughs> just because it's. I I want to. I want to. You know, close a little bit more on the fun stuff. That's yes. why I did all the heavy stuff in the <laughs> beginning. But I I don't know if you remember, but there was a meme of people would put sunglasses on dogs' butts because it formed yes, a face, yes. and then the, the, the tail was the nose. I should have worn that you T-shirt. Worn those, yes. But that's but a good example. That yeah, the, the T-shirts, right, are, are like the, the meme thing now, right? And, uh, and those are not accidents. Um, the, uh, uh, the T-shirt industry uh, has kind of systematized the supply chain such that uh, you can go on a site like Teespring um, or, or um, uh, you know, Vistaprint, and it gives you a template um, so all you have to do is customize it. And that looks exactly like uh, the digital meme templates um, that helped uh, kind of uh, Success Kit take off. Um, part of the reason Success Kit worked is, well, it's, it's a funny meme, but literally there's like a tool you can go and you can just kind of log in and then type type your image and then you can export it, right? And now you have that for T-shirts. You can, you know, type your image, type, type your, you know, put your image and type your caption. And then a few days later, a T-shirt shows up. Um, and so uh, by decreasing the cost of uh, production... Um, both intellectual and kind of the uh, the financial cost of it, you increase the range of uh, creativity as a result. So I want to talk about cats. <laughs> and <laughs> you would be, yeah. be remiss to not talk about I cats. Just, if I just, I, w- I would be really upset with myself <laughs> if I didn't talk to you about cats. Um, but, you know, because I mean, even the, the, the face of the event today was Grumpy Cat. Yes, yes. You know? <laughs> and... But you talk about 
the really fascinating history, and I don't want to give it away completely, and I don't want you to give it away completely because <laughs> okay. I want people to read the book because it's so good. <laughs> but could you talk about kind of the advent and the popularity of cats? Without giving it away. Without giving it away. <laughs> you um, could do it. Um, yeah, well, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I got interested in this topic, the, uh, starting with cats and cat memes. And, uh, um, and but when you think about it, like you, 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 we kind of want to draw this distinction between kind of these, these kind of silly cat memes and kind of these, these very serious political issues. Um, but cat memes in, as themselves are a political topic. Um, and, and specifically, this is the history of cats in the West, um, uh, are associated with witchcraft in the kind of 15th, 16th century, that literally women who had a cat uh, could be burned to the stake for being witches. Um, and and that kind of history of marginalization has continued to today. You know, the, the notion of the crazy cat lady, um, the notion of like the neurotic cat owner like John Arbuckle, right? Um, you kind of had the, the cats associated with mischief. Um, and uh, in the book, I talk about the, um, uh, you know, um, how many of you know, you know your Chinese zodiac sign? Yeah. Um, none of you are year of the cat. None of you. Um, some of you are year of the dog. Um, there are 12 zodiac animals, um, and, uh, uh, but why are there no cats, right? Uh, cats definitely existed at that time. Um, and the, as the story goes, uh, the, you know, the, the legend is, is that um, uh, the ox, the rat, and the cat were kind of crossing a river to try to be chosen by the gods to be the uh, part of the, astrolog- the, the kind of 12 zodiac animals. And as they were getting closer, the rat like, pushed the, the cat off. Um, and uh, so the cats were literally marginalized. Um, and, and so you just have this kind of history of marginalization of cats. And yes, Egypt is like a kind of outlier. But um, I was just about to gonna, bring that I mean, yeah, up. I was I'm like, just going to conveniently ignore this. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, but if we think about the kind of trajectory of modern culture, right, um, uh, like the, of the Western culture in particular, um, it is, you know, dog is man's best friend. Uh, you had Lassie, Old Yeller, you had Balto. Um, and so uh, the the Internet in so many ways allowed, you know, for this kind of amazing new kind of cat meme culture uh, through, um, you have one, the ease of use of taking pictures, um, two, the ease of distribution, um, and then three, the ability for people to find each other. Because um, dogs, historically, in, in Western culture, have a very public kind of role, right? You walk them, uh, you take them to dog parks, uh, you have the dog, dog, par- you have the dog, dog shows, um, whereas cats uh, traditionally are just like in the home. And yeah, they wander out, but you know, generally your, like, your best moments with your cat are when they're kind of like poking at you in the morning, right? Uh, personally, uh, I'd like to see a cat show. <laughs> I, just I mean, they exist, they exist, I, yeah, but... Um, uh, but in so many ways, like when you go to cat shows, it's kind of it's kind of weird because they, they're not they're not in their catness. They're they're just kind of like sitting there quietly, uh, mm-hmm. and like the the quirkiness of cats, the, mm-hmm. the kind of things that go viral on the internet are things that happen to cats in the home. Um, and so you have to think about the enablers of that, and then also the cultural context um, that uh, that basically allowed for what was essentially a dog media hegemony. Um, and it, I right? love. Can you just say that phrase again? <laughs> We lived in a dog media hegemony, <laughs> um, and then cats um, are now kind of have entered the vernacular. We now have Grumpy Cat. We now have uh, Lil Bub. We have literally, but you know, what Jason Epping calls the the the, the cat, the acute cat industrial complex, um, and uh, it, it is an industry, a million dollar industry, and so it revealed a market that was always there, um, and uh, um, in so many ways, you can kind of look at that that kind of from silly to the capital. Um, uh, you kind of see the trajectory of a lot of uh, independent media in general. Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the other things I wanted to mention was, you know how the, in this. I'm so happy 
to have read this is owling because you know my love for owls. I mean, I love cats, clearly, but I also, you know, my love for owls before Urban Outfitters popularized all that. But I remember that that was one of the things I noticed where, or planking, Planking. you know, where people, Mm -hmm. that was the first time I noticed hashtags moving into this kind of, you know, outside the realm of the digital, for yes, instance. Yeah, so it's absolutely. kind of, you, you know, you, you're touching upon this and how it relates to our own lived experiences. Um, but I'm wondering if you have seen or can speak to other physical, I don't even know how to really articulate this, but memes that became physical and not physical as in like they became t-shirts, but people actually started enacting like performative, performative memes. memes. Right, right. Yeah, I think... Um, uh, I'll step away from the U.S. context uh, uh, just for, for this example is um, in Turkey um, during the Gezi Park protests. Um, uh, uh, Zeynep Tefekci has written about this and other arts writers have written about this. Is There is a meme uh, because people couldn't had uh, couldn't gather in the park um, for a certain periods of time. So they, uh, this uh, performance artist, his name is escaping me right now, but created a meme called Standing Man. And it was a picture of him from behind just standing. Um, and uh, um, and so many of the protesters um, uh, would would stand like roughly like this, like kind of like a um, uh, like a standing man a kind of image, like like in a restroom sign. Um, and uh, and then from from behind, they would t- take pictures of, of each other, and that became a form of digital public assembly. As a result, um, using the, this kind of performative gestures that we think of as like silly owling and planking, but it then had this kind of really strong political connotation, um, and so. Um, uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a good example of this, the kind of the very fuzzy boundary between online and offline, um, because they were they were physically gathering. Um, they just couldn't do it at the park, and then they were gather, they were taking those pictures, putting them online, and then created a kind of a larger um, kind of uh, public assembly. Mm-hmm. It kind of also reminds me of, um, and I want to bring her up is uh, Sasha, uh, and hopefully I pronounce her name correctly, Sasha Costanza Chalk. And how she brings up this idea of transmedia organizing. Because I think that's one of the, for me, and again, I think you're very familiar with my my practice of having done community organizing, um, you know, a few years ago, where when you do activist work and you're in these different communities that you're working in, you have to have a dynamic practice. Not just as, I mean, you're essentially being a media maker, but not in this very static way of I'm just going to produce images. And I think that's the reason why I ask that question about it relating to the physicality and performativity of memes. So when you brought up her work and, you know, she talks about how uh, social movements are becoming this transmedia hub and, you know, I'm very curious, do you see, so let's go back to and again, I don't want to belabor the point on Article 13, right? But how could people fight against, say, a meme ban in that way? Because if you have to think about having or engaging in a transmedia or in transmedia organizing, that's something you have to be very wary of. So then what do – well, here, let me ask you a more future-thinking, future-forward-thinking question here. What do you think people – uh, whether they're activists, artists, writers, have to do to navigate around that. What do you see in the future as trans, you know, transmedia uh, organizing or creation um, around Article Thirteen in particular? Y- you can speak to that, or just generally. Just generally, yeah. Well, I think I think one of the the points I try to leave for people in the book is is the notion of transmedia, like that this idea that 
Yeah, we, we, we want to isolate memes to, to just like these pictures or these, these hashtags. Um, but uh, once you start seeing them in their larger kind of media discourse, um, you know, whether it's the physical body, physical gatherings, it's films, um, it's media, you know, kind of headlines and news, right? You start to see it as part of a conversation. Um, you start to see that, that media today is not static, but is actually discursive. Um, and so, um, and the fact that um, that the fact that it's transmedia is is more it's a reflection of the fact that these kind of cultural units, these memes, um, sit in our head, and then we express them through the way that makes the most sense, given the the, the kind of thing that we're trying to communicate. So maybe it's a physical gathering, maybe it's going to be a film, maybe it's going to be a book. Um, it's going to be all kinds of like different types of media. It's going to engage across different media, um, and so we should expect more and more of that. Um, we should expect. Uh, um, uh, that uh, that n- there, there won't be a single form of media uh, through which a movement expresses itself, but will actually be quite uh, quite diverse. Um, and so, in the context of Article Thirteen, um, as uh, you know, let's say it passes, right? And let's say that it is it is you know, as some critics are suggesting, that it will largely kind of limit mimetic expression. Uh, the thing we should expect is is the remix that uh, that just skirts the line, uh, the, the remixes that that just uh, that reshape it just enough uh, to to kind of get it out there, um, or or that it uh, the the remixes may not take place in digital space, but might actually be in physical gatherings. And so, um, uh, how it will actually play out is you know it's again a thornier question, but uh, but the larger point I want to make is that uh, that it's not one media um, that memes are are you know across all, all forms of media. Okay, I have to ask the million-dollar question. I mean, I've always wondered this and want your opinion, but I'm sure that there are other inquiring minds that really want to know this. <laughs> GIFs or GIFs for those that like the hard G. <laughs> oh, See, no. I said both. Oh, no. <laughs> Do you consider those memes? Oh, so not, uh, just uh, the images themselves yeah, and, and the kind of the, the fact that they uh, – yeah, move around. And here's a, yeah. well, here's the reason why I say that, and I think this is because in my on, in my brain, I've been thinking. I've been reading a lot about reenactment yeah. recently, yeah. and kind of when we think of and you know, let me step away for a second and give you context of why I'm asking you this. When we think of reenactment, you know, like whether it's film or documentary, uh, more often than not, because I used to be, I, I wrote this recently. I was addicted to unsolved mysteries, so it's like I was addicted to reenactment, even though I knew that that wasn't real what I was seeing, that there's some kind of action that's uh, representative of, of a truth, right? So then GIFs or GIFs, um, because they're moving image and sometimes can be pegged as video, I think it could be argued that they're not memes. But I can also see them being arguably absolutely memes because they're viral. And, you know, that could be kind of the 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 um, actual defining factor or the the definition of that. But I'm curious if you have thoughts on that. Um, definitely their memes, I think. Um, and, uh, and it's supposed to, you know, step back to like, think about how, how some meme scholars have defined it. Um, and, uh, um, I, I chatted with Amanda Brennan, who's a Tumblr meme librarian. She's a great, great title. Ask her for her definition. And she said, it's memes are digital content shared from person to person and change along the way. And so there's no stricture there about like the type of content, except that it's digital. And so that's where I would extend her definition and say it's, like, it's any type of media, um, including T-shirts, right? Um, and so in that way, GIFs slash GIFs um, are, um, are themselves um, memes. Like they, as long as they are, are kind of participating in, in this kind of 
culture remix and sharing. Um, I think they fit. Um, and then kind of a meta point, the, the whole question of is it a gif or a gif is itself a meme, um, which is, which is well, uh, yeah, you know kind of blowing what? up too. I looked that up and apparently it's gif, but I just still say gif. But then, you know, it's preference, right? Tomato, tomato. It's a death but, of consensus, isn't yeah. it? Even, even a around desensus a in this yeah. case, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And so it's, it's kind of a microcosm of this kind of larger internet dynamic where a single thing like a word, uh, we, it's, it's hard to come to agreement these days. Yeah. By the way, just because I do film and digital media, I know that GIFs or GIFs are memes. I just want to ask because I was just curious how you would define <laughs> how it. How would I define it? Yeah. Okay, on that note, brilliant note, thank you for your wisdom thank and you. telling thank us you. the memeing of everything. Get it? Okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think now we're going to transition and have the book signing. Yeah, just hang out. Yeah. And just hang out if you have any more questions. But yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, CIS. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>